0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Okay, uh, let's jump in. First six verses of chapter 11 read like this The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land and Egypt, the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. again, I mentioned this just a moment ago. When we read this verse in isolation, to me, there's one question that comes to mind. Is God just? When we look at this event that God is saying He will bring to pass, is this just? Is it right to indiscriminately kill every Firstborn in Egypt. From Pharaoh's firstborn to the lowliest slave girl's firstborn and every firstborn in between. I don't know about you, but that makes me uncomfortable. And so when we read this, it... it, For some of us, it might seem like it's an open and shut case. Is God just? Well, clearly not. Who does this? How could something this terrible, this terrifying, possibly be just? Well, thankfully, this text does have a context that it resides in, and it is one, a context that might, just might, tip the balance of the scales for us. And so there's two things that we need to remember from the context as we read this particular chapter in Exodus. The first and the most simple one is this. The Egyptians, the people of Egypt, were idolaters. They worshiped other gods instead of the one God, Yahweh. And God has made it abundantly clear throughout the Bible even thus far That that, in and of itself, is a sin for which the judgment is death, right? I mean, that's what he tells Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That is the condemnation for their sin. It is the just punishment for their sin. In elevating themselves above the Lord God, in worshiping themselves instead of Him, they receive death. Now, That philosophically and according to ultimately God's word should be enough. It should be enough for us to answer that question is God just? Yes. Sinners receive death, sinners receiving death is just. But let's keep going. We must also remember in coming to chapter 11 that Egypt had knowingly, willingly, severely enslaved the Israelite people for four years hundred years. Now, just for reference, 400 years ago, the United States of America was negative 157 years old. And in Exodus chapter 1, we had their stay described for us, don't we? Let me read it to you, if I can turn the page. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, reads like this, But that's not all. They didn't just enslave the people of Israel, right? If we read the following two verses, we come to find out something else, which is this. Verse 15 says that the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. What is this? This is an attempt, this is an attempt at genocide. This is an attempt to erase an entire people group from the face of the planet. Right, so if idolatry wasn't enough for you, if you're kind of like, I still, I'm not really comfortable with this idea that if we worship something else, God deserves to kill us. Well, here we have instances where any one of us would want to see justice. 400 years of slavery, any one of us would want to see that Rectified would want to see justice done for that, would want to see that made right. Attempted genocide, right? Same thing. None of us are upset, right, that Hitler got the end that he got. None of us are upset that the Nuremberg trials were a thing, right? Now, while these three things are damning in and of themselves... Let's not forget that before we arrived at today's passage, the Egyptians have also also been given nine, now nine opportunities to behold the glory of the Lord in His sovereignty over the things of the earth and turning rivers to blood and bringing frogs and gnats and causing livestock to perish and so on and so forth. Nine opportunities that the Egyptians have been given to repent. Nine opportunities that Moses has been given, not Moses, that Pharaoh has been given to say, okay, you know what, God, you win. You are who you say you are. You are more powerful than I am. You are Lord over all. And so with all that said, I think, The answer to our question, is God just, is an emphatic yes. Is God just in bringing death to the Egyptians in the way that He says He will bring death to them here in chapter 11? We don't see it play out until chapter 12, but is He just in this? Emphatically, yes, He is. But the story gets more interesting. In verse 7, God, through Moses, says, says this. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God as he has throughout the book of Genesis and throughout even the short time that we've been in Exodus, promises to protect and to preserve the people of Israel, his chosen people. Interestingly, he says that not a dog will growl against them. You see, the Egyptian god of embalming and of death is the god Anubis which if you've ever seen a picture of Anubis, um, it's a man uh, with the head of a jackal, um, which if you've never seen a jackal, you could Google it right now, but it, it's essentially a dog. In saying this, God is again making it clear to Pharaoh, using his own language, speaking in his own terms so that he could, he could only understand. Listen, death will not come near, Anubis will not come near, the the dog will not come near my chosen people, the people of Israel. And of course, this makes sense to us, right? This, This story has a clear antagonist and a clear protagonist, doesn't it? The antagonist is Pharaoh in Egypt who have oppressed the Israelites time and time again, 400 years long. And it has a clear protagonist, right? The enslaved peoples of Israel, the helpless, the quote-unquote innocent. Protection is what oppressed people deserve. It's unquestionably true. And yet, here's what I think is odd. The Israelites are not guiltless. Yes, they are the oppressed. Absolutely, no question about that, right? They are the oppressed, but they are not guiltless. In fact, the very next book of the Bible, Leviticus, in chapter 17, we are told that the Israelites were also idolaters. Right? This is what Leviticus 17 says after liberating them from Egypt, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And then the book of Joshua, just a few books later in the Bible, says this, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord." So this becomes the question then, if God is just in punishing idolaters, why do the Israelites receive God's mercy and protection? What is this distinction between Israelite and Egyptian? Could not God also justly punish Israel? Certainly He could. But throughout this series, we've said the following, and it's really important, especially in light of today's sermon. Throughout this series, we said the following, the Exodus is an in-depth case study in the way that God saves historically, eternally, individually, and corporately. This verse is the perfect example of that, because here we see God's absolute sovereignty over His divine mercy. The Israelites, like the Egyptians, merit in their behavior the wrath of God for their idolatry, just like the Egyptians. To put it in perhaps more familiar terms from Romans, the Israelites too had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So why spare them? Well, here's what we can know, just right off the bat, just based on what we're seeing happen here. God is not sparing the Israelites because of any virtue or any good work on their part. They're worshiping the same gods in Egypt They're enslaved, yes, they're experiencing all of the brutality of that, but insofar as their worship of God, insofar as their commitment to God, it's essentially not there. In fact, what I find interesting is that in the beginning chapters of Exodus, when we hear that God hears the cry of the Israelites, you'll notice that that there's one detail there that's really important to catch on to. It doesn't say that God heard the Israelites crying out to him. It just says that God heard Israel crying out. And so, again, God in that moment hears the cries of the Israelite people and he remembers his covenant. He remembers his covenant and he comes down and he protects and he provides and he promises. To guard and keep safe. According to what? The sufficient prayers of His people? The loud cries of the Israelites? No. According to His covenant. Because He is a promise-keeping God, He is now here keeping His promise in spite of the fact that His people have dropped the ball. It is simply according to God's own good pleasure that he has set them apart for himself. And it is for a very clear purpose, and we read that in the very next verse. This is verse 8. All these your servants shall come down to me. That is Pharaoh's servants. All these your servants shall come down to me. And bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God has set apart Israel according to his own good pleasure in order that his glory might be multiplied in the earth. That should sound very familiar to us. This is what God has always intended from the very beginning, is it not? To have for Himself a people, both to whom He reveals Himself and through whom He then reveals Himself to the world, right? Adam and Eve, filled with God's glory, made in His image, go, be fruitful and multiply. God says, listen, you can be as stubborn as you want. My will is going to be done. I'm going to have a people through whom my glory is multiplied. This is not new. This is God's MO. This is his standard operating Procedure. This is God choosing Adam and Eve, setting them apart to propagate His glory. This is God choosing Noah and setting His family apart to propagate His glory in the world. This is God choosing Abram and setting His family apart to propagate His glory. In the same way, brothers and sisters, you who are of Christ, we sit here this morning as those who have been chosen and set apart in order to propagate God's glory. This is what God does. In order to clarify, let me read from what many consider some of the most confusing passages of Scripture. Romans chapter 9 reads like this. And if you want to turn there, we're we're going to read quite a bit um, with some sort of interspersed detail to help us understand what we're reading. But this is what it says. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 10 And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, that is Abraham's promised son, who was spared from being sacrificed and the, the, the ram was sacrificed instead. Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. I think you see where we're going here. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I Have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed, where? In all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. My friends, the Bible as a whole this morning, from Exodus to Romans, makes it clear that if you are in Christ this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because you were chosen by God. You were chosen. And this is where we come full circle, isn't it? Full circle back to our original question, is God just? The most common objection, the most common objection to the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God choosing us, is precisely that. This makes God unjust. I myself had that objection before I spent many hours with Romans chapter 9. And you know what's funny is that Paul foresaw that objection. He did. He says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He uses this story of God choosing Jacob instead of Esau. And says that his choosing not to save Esau was made before either man was born or could do anything good or bad. And the apostle goes on to explain that the Lord's choosing of some to salvation is not a matter of justice but a matter of mercy. And that God is free to show mercy to whomever he wills. In other words, mercy is not something that we can demand of God. Mercy that is obligated is not mercy. We can never merit mercy from God. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, true mercy is not justice, but it is not injustice either. Consider two categories, justice and non-justice. Everything that is not justice falls under the category of non-justice. And that includes mercy and injustice. Whether a person receives mercy or injustice, he has not received justice. But note that mercy and justice, injustice are not equivalent. If a leader shows mercy and pardons one convicted criminal and not another, he has not dealt with the non-pardoned individual unjustly. In passing over some for salvation... God is still dealing with them justly because they've earned their condemnation. Now, at the end of the day, what does this all mean? Like, why does this matter? Why are we walking circles around this question of God's justice and asking what is required for Him to be merciful? Well, let me give you a few, a few reasons. The first reason is for those of us who are in the room this morning that, that might not be a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then this matters because God is right now, right now through His Word, extending an invitation to you to join His chosen people. Like Egypt, God is right now revealing Himself to you by His Word, and the offer to join Him is free. You don't have to have reached a certain level of morality, right? Again, there's, there's nothing moral necessarily that distinguishes Israelite from Egyptian. And the case that Paul is making in Romans, there's nothing moral that distinguishes Jew and Greek. Jesus welcomes the least, the last, and the lost with open arms. And so my my plea to you, if you're not a Christian in the room this morning, is to not be like Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart to that call. If you're here, if you're hearing these words, that is God telling you that there is mercy for you. Listen, Romans chapter 10, right after what we just read, right, says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes, everyone who believes in Him, will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Listen, hear the Word of Christ. Because as we see in Exodus chapter 11, it is, in fact, a matter of life and death. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, I think it matters for three reasons, and I'm going to try to zoom through them real, really quickly. The first one is this. It necessarily, when we recognize that our salvation, the mercy that we've received from God through Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, when when we recognize that that really and truly is only a gift, that there's literally not a shred of anything that we have done or could have done to earn that, to merit that, it necessarily humbles us. It necessarily humbles us because the chosen are just as worthy of condemnation as the unchosen. That's why Paul says, look at me, I'm the chief of sinners. Why do I deserve that? I don't. I'm one of them. That's why Paul in the beginning of Romans chapter 9 says he has great sorrow and unceasing anger anguish in his heart because he wishes that he was accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his Jewish brothers. He understands that there's nothing in him. That's why just a couple chapters ago in Romans 7, he says, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I do the things I don't want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do and everything else in between. This is why pride is so antithetical to Christian living. It just makes absolutely no sense in light of this doctrine. The second thing, the second reason it matters is it assures us. Listen, if God chooses us, it really does mean that it's not up to ourselves to keep ourselves in his good graces, he is going to be faithful to us in the same way that he was faithful to his unfaithful people in Israel. And this is where we could jump into Romans chapter 11 and go, it would get all weird in here. But just, you know, go home, read it, give it a shot. We can talk about it. But it assures us that when he says, all throughout the Scripture, but I mean, just take First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has given us an inheritance that no moth can destroy and no thief can steal, that is itself being guarded by God's own power, Right? This makes those words true to me. It's not about whether I'm fickle or whether I... What happens day to day, God is going to be faithful to His promise to, as the, the Bible also says, complete the good work which He's begun in us. And the third and final thing it does is this, or the third and final reason that it matters is this, it challenges us. It challenges us to be serious about being set apart. God chooses us, but that's not a carte blanche to do whatever we want because we're the chosen. God chooses us and He sets us apart. He's making a distinction between the church, His people, and the world. He is doing that. And he's serious about that distinction. He's serious about that distinction being there. We are meant, brothers and sisters, to look different. We are meant to behave differently. We are meant to think and act differently in a multitude of ways. How we spend our money, who we spend our time with, what we spend our time doing, and more. And one of the chief ways that that it sets us apart is it, it it necessarily causes us to be urgent about telling others yes we should be the people that willingly chime up among our family friends and coworkers to speak about a crucified homeless nazarene who died 2000 years ago and who we believe in so doing offers them eternal life because this isn't a game life is not a game this is why after the chapter in Romans about election, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, and we read a little bit of it. It tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and in verse 14, he says this, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who Preach the good news. This morning, if you've heard the word of Christ, if you're not yet a Christian, confess and believe and you will be saved. If you are a Christian, you've heard the word of Christ and you've received his mercy, go and tell others of that same mercy and may God make our feet swift and beautiful for the task. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, Lord, just grateful to be gathered together. Grateful for your kindness and your grace and your mercy to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, that you would make him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made righteous. As you are righteous. Thank you, Lord, that that work was not dependent on our performance, not dependent on something that we've done or said or recited. As we sang just a few moments ago, there is no list of sins we have not done. There's no list of virtues we could pursue. There's no list of those that we're not like that could earn ourselves a place with you. And so, God, we receive your mercy this morning humbly and with gratitude, with lifted hands, lifted voices, and great joy in the knowledge that you save and you preserve your people for your glory and for our joy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.